Hello and welcome, Kurt Smith. Hello, David Knight. Good to see you. Oh, thank you. Kurt, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. <laughs> in 60 seconds. Well, uh, first and most important, I am a Christian. Uh, second to that, I am a very blessed husband to a beloved wife, Lori, and we've been married for 29 years. I'm the father of three, a daughter who is 26, a son who's 22, and another son who is 10. Uh, also, my wife and I are new grandparents to a little girl named Laura Bell. Uh, our daughter, she uh, that's her daughter. Um, also, uh, besides that, I am a pastor. I've been a pastor for the last 25 years. So I've been in the Christian ministry for the past 33. I am an author, published author. Uh, the book we'll be discussing today is actually my fifth publication. And I've got a brand new publication that will be coming out under Founders Press at the first of next year, Lord willing. Uh, also, I am an artist. I have a, a formal degree in commercial art. I'm a musician. My first instrument is drums. My second is a guitar. But I've been playing drums since I was 11, and I'm 55. Um, and then, uh, and then, besides that, um, every uh, every fall and winter season here where I live, um, for the last 19 years, I'm I'm an avid white-tailed deer hunter. Well, you are a busy man, Kurt. So your new book that's coming out next year. <laughs> what what is the title of that? What's it going to be about? So the new book is on Jonathan Edwards, and the title is A Pastor in Revival, and the subtitle is How Jonathan Edwards Discerned and Defended the Great Awakening. And so this book is actually a perfect complement to the book we'll be discussing today on George Whitfield. Right. 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 Excellent. Well, we'll have to make a date to, to get you back on again to talk about that next year when it comes out. That'll be fun. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Kurt. Thank you. <laughs> so take us back to the beginning. How did you become a Christian? Well, I, uh, I, I closed with Christ on December 20th, 1987. Um, I, I was just 20 years old at that time. But preceding that, um, I grew up in a semi-Christian home. Uh, my mom uh, professed faith in Christ. My dad, to this day, uh, is not a Christian. But it was it was my mom and her mother, my grandmother, who really sowed the initial seeds of the gospel in me from childhood. Uh, my grandmother especially. Uh, she really wore her faith on her sleeve, and she was constantly... Um, you know, putting Christ in front of me and, and calling me uh, to turn to the Lord. Um, but my mom always had me in church. I was I was in a good Baptist church. I heard the gospel. Um, when I was 13 years old, I went through the motions of what you would call decisional salvation. You know, prayed the mantra sinner's prayer, was baptized, joined the church all in the same day. So went through all of that, but I was as lost as I could be. You know, um, I, I I became a, a church member, but I really had not come into God's kingdom. I, I had not been born again. And that would not come about until I was 20 years of age. 
And preceding the actual conversion to Christ on December 20th, 1987, I went through 18 months of just deep, deep conviction over my sin. And this came by way of a circle of people that I began to connect with through a former uh, high school teacher uh, who was a Christian. And he had basically brought me back into church. And, um, and so through basically a culture of Christianity, uh, I would eventually hear the gospel again. But this time, I really heard it, had the ears to hear it, and was brought to faith in Christ. Wow. But interestingly, there are actually some shadows there, similar to George Whitfield's conversion, which I think you're going to tell us about a little bit later on. So that would be interesting. Uh, Kurt, <laughs> when did you feel according to ministry and tell us what happened? Um, I, um, I sense the first real subjective aspirations into ministry um, not long after my conversion. Um, I, um, the church where I was a member, which was the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, here in the U.S., um, there was a membership packet that they gave all new members. And in the packet, there was a cassette tape. This is really showing my age, but there was a cassette tape <laughs> of a sermon called Made for Ministry. And honestly, at that time, I had I had no aspirations to preach, to pastor, Really, what I wanted to do more than anything was to continue pursuing what was my my lifelong dream that was becoming a career musician. And so uh, I listened to this sermon and listened to it in one sitting. And during listening to that sermon for the first time, I just had I just had this sense. I don't know in any other way to describe it um, that preaching the word of God may perhaps be my life's calling. And, and, and I, and I wanted to pursue that. And it was strange because there was no one else in my family who was a pastor, you know, um, the, the only other person who I knew in my family that was a pastor was my, my grandfather, five generations removed, Daniel Marshall. <laughs> so, um, so it's been quite a while since in my family, we, you know, we had had any, um, anyone in the ministry. And so, so from that point on the year, the year following that Baptist church where I was a member, the pastor there asked me if I would start teaching uh, this youth Bible study. So I, I agreed to it. And he sat in on, on some of those meetings. And finally he said, you know, he said, I think you may be actually called to preach. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. So July 22nd, 1989, I preached my very first sermon at this church. And for the first time, I had the objective confirmation of a local church saying, we definitely believe you're called to preach. You sound like you've been preaching for 40 years. And I was I was stunned. And so from that point on, um, I started preaching. In various churches, I went for eight years, actually, as an itinerant evangelist, which is another way I can relate to Whitfield. Um, and then in 1997 was when I entered the pastorate. Um, preceding that, I'd been to Bible college. Um, during during Bible college, one of my one of my classes was pastoral duties. And 
And in that class, um, the professor had all these different uh, pastors coming to us every week, telling us these stories, real stories of being a pastor and being a pastoral ministry. And frankly, the stories scared me to death uh, because they really told some horrid stories of, of life and ministry as a pastor. And I just thought, well, there's just no way, no way I'm, I'm, I'm going that route. I'll just, I'll just continue preaching as an itinerant evangelist. But um, as I shared with you earlier, before this interview started, 1996, my wife and I went to England and we went there under the auspices of what was then called the Southern Baptist Foreign Missionary Board, which is now IMB. And we were stationed in Sheffield, Yorkshire, three hours north of London. And uh, we were there at what was uh, called Cemetery Road Baptist Church, which is still there in Sheffield. And during that time we were there, which was in September of 96, uh, we were there for half, half of that month. Um, we, with, with the, the different members of that congregation that I was ministering to, um, my heart just began to really break for them because the pastor at that time was an avowed liberal. And he made no bones about it. I mean, he knew what he was theologically, and he made it clear to us on the first day we were there that he was not an evangelical. He was a liberal. This guy was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the last Sunday that I preached in that church, there was an elderly British woman that came up to me and un unusual uh, with the English, um, since you brethren are so reserved with your emotions. She was not reserved that day. She was in tears. And she... She said to me, she said, I have prayed for 40 years that I would hear the word of God preached in this church. And she said, she said, God has now answered my prayers. And honestly, David, I, I did not want to leave Sheffield. I wanted to stay there and minister to those people. I, you know, and, and so coming back to the U S I told my wife, I said, I want to pursue this call into the pastorate. And so the following year, 1997, I took my first church. I was uh, called to this local church. And and um, and since 1997, I've been in pastoral ministry. And, and granted, I have faced everything I feared the most. Uh, in, in those classes in Bible college, I, I have faced all my worst fears. But the Lord has sustained me. He's taken me through all of that. He's grown me, sanctified me. And so... Here I am. <laughs> yeah, continue oh, to do brilliant to hear. Yeah, really, really good stuff. As well as a pastor, we've we've mentioned already that you are also an author, and you've you've written an excellent biography on George Whitfield called "Thundering yeah. the Word: The Awakening Ministry of George Whitfield." As Christians living when we do, we're spoiled for choice, aren't we? On some great, great men that the Lord has uh, given us in previous generations. Oh, yeah. What was it about Whitfield that made you want to invest three years of your life writing about him? Well, Whitfield um, really became my very first Christian hero of the faith. Um, I was first introduced to him in 1989, first time I ever heard about him. And uh, amazingly, it was <laughs> the first time I ever heard about George Whitfield was in a Pentecostal church <laughs> with this Pentecostal pastor who was telling the story of the 18th century evangelical awakening there in England. And he and he he took as his focus George Whitfield, and so in listening to what he was sharing and telling about Whitfield, 
um, I was just stunned. I was stunned by this, this, this man, this man of God, and I wanted to learn more about him. And so that started me on this quest to read everything I could on George Whitfield. And the, the biggest thing that struck me at first about Whitfield was the power of God in his life and ministry and how the Lord's power was so demonstrable in his preaching and in the fruit of his labors. But the second thing that struck me about Whitfield as I continued, because this was a 30 year study, the second thing that struck me the most was his humility. And so in 2017, when I started this writing project that would become Thundering the Word, I really wanted to focus on Whitfield's humility. Um, that's, that's how it started off, which is the reason why chapter one really zeroes in on that, you know, but I don't, I don't pick it up until later in the book as a full chapter, uh, regarding Whitfield's legacy, but it, so it was, it was God's power in his ministry, but then also the grace of humility that was just so outstanding to me. That's, that is why I spent those years writing about him. Yeah. There are already some excellent books available on the life of George Whitford, including the excellent double volume Arnold Dallymore biography published by Banner of Truth. You come at it, though, with a fresh approach. What are you wanting to add that hasn't already been written about? Well, one thing I one one thing I definitely wanted to address and add was addressing the naysayers uh, since 1995. uh beginning with uh, a book written by Harry Stout called The Divine Dramatist, which I actually talked with Arnold Dallimore himself about that book uh, in 1995. Um, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to address academic historians like those men who were really painting a very wrong and just really a, a false picture of who Whitfield was. Uh, the other thing is, is that I, you know, like I said a moment ago, I wanted to focus on Whitfield's humility, but also to focus on his humanity um, and and yet his humanity, keeping it in the full context of God's redeeming grace in his life. And, you know, and, and of course, the other matter is that this is not an exhaustive biography. So I, I really focus on the first seven years of his Christian life which are the most dramatic of his Christian life and ministry uh, because of the different events that are covered in that period and realizing that here was a, here was a young man in his twenties and it is astounding one at how God used him, but two, that being that young, he showed just the level of, as I said, humility, maturity, you know, just how self-effacing he was. And so that was something that I wanted to, you know, that I wanted a fresh approach with. I mean, Dally Moore had touched on those things, but what I wanted to do was put a magnifying glass on. Right. Yeah. You, you just touched on it. You had the pleasure in 1995 to sit down with Arnold Dally Moore to talk about his work in the life of George Whitfield. What do you remember about that day, Kurt? Well, uh, it uh, well, first of all, it, it was a phone conversation. Uh, Arnold Dallymore was in Ontario, Canada, at that time, and um, and I, I was in my in my home state of Georgia. But I had been reading with I, I had been reading the two volume set of Dallymore's uh, biography on Whitfield, 
And I was in the second volume. I had some questions uh, that only Arnold Dallymore could answer. And so I just decided, well, I know that he lives in Canada. I know he's in Ontario. So I'll just pick up the phone and just call information and see if I can reach reach him <laughs> that way. So so I, I contacted Arnt, on Ontario Canada, called information. I said, I'm looking for Arnold Dallymore. And they said, well, there's two of them. One one is a minister. I said, that's the one I want. And so they put me through. Uh, his wife answered the phone. She was very sweet. And um, and the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Arnold Dallymore. And for 90 minutes, we're having a very, very engaging conversation about George Whitfield. And and I had told I told Arnold Dallymore that I would be going to Great Britain uh, the following year. And he told me, well, he said, be sure to go to the British Museum because there at the British Museum, they have Whitfield's diary. And he said, he said, you, he said, you, you need, you need to see if you can, you can see that diary, check it out. Because he said that uh, it was Ian Murray who had put Dallymore onto that. And, um, and of course, you know, we, we, we know the rest of that story. So, but, um, but Arnold Dallymore, yes, he helped me a great deal um, in that conversation about Whitfield. One of the biggest questions I had for him was in regards to Whitfield's marriage and honestly, I, I just was not satisfied with what I had read about Whitfield's marriage. And, and to be very honest, I really wasn't satisfied with, with Brother Dallimore's answer, um, which is one reason why I address Whitfield's marriage as candidly as I do in my book, um, but also do it, of course, with as much grace, you know, as I can. Um, but, but yeah, that was... That was a very, very significant conversation and and one that obviously I'll never forget. Yeah, I don't think I'd planned to ask you about his marriage. So I might not get the opportunity again during our conversation today. Just just touch on that for us, Kurt. What 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 did you find out about his marriage that, that we that, you know, that you didn't know before? Well, I think the biggest thing that I learned about Whitfield's marriage is that you know it it was it was a for lack of a better term it was a forced marriage um he he was never in love with elizabeth elizabeth was in love with whitfield's best friend hal harris and um hal harris did not want to marry elizabeth and hal harris knew that whitfield needed a wife and so Hal Harris became matchmaker between these two. And uh, and it really turned out to be for over 30 years, just a, a sad, it was just, it was a sad marriage, frankly. I mean, um, Elizabeth, uh, she remained in correspondence with Hal Harris for many years and uh, in uh, during her marriage with uh, Whitfield. Whitfield uh, more or less treated his wife as a ministry assistant. Um, you know, and even though they had one child together, I mean, there were, there were several miscarriages before. And of course the one child that, that did survive birth, um, you know, would pass away only a few months later. And, um, and that was, you know, tragic, but what was to me, what was more tragic, which I, I bring out in the book is that, you know, just one example of 
George Whitfield was never a husband that dwelled with his wife with understanding as as husbands are commanded in scripture to do. And 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 case in point was when their child passed away. Um you know, Whit I mean Whitfield Whitfield before the funeral, he, he was preaching elsewhere. He then preached the funeral and then and then sent his wife uh, back to their home, and then he went off trekking again, preaching. And he he was he was determined before he married Elizabeth that his mar- that his marriage to her was not in any way going to deter his his ministry. And and it was something that he expressed uh, to Gilbert Tennant in a letter, which I have quoted in the book. And it just you know it's I mean it's sad. I mean I as I'm 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 the first and the only biographer of Whitfield that goes so far as to say Whitfield never should have married. He was married to Christ. He had an exceptional devotion to Jesus Christ. He could have survived as a single man. Right. I mean, he really could have. You know. Yeah. Uh, and when his wife passed away, his uh, his personal assistant Cornelius Winter said that Whitfield was relieved. Yeah. And so yeah. it's you know. It's heartbreaking, but but that 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 shows you the humanity of these these heroes we have yeah. of the faith. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Kurt. That's right. An important aspect of Whitfield's life were the relationships that he formed over his lifetime. Tell us about the beginnings of some of those relationships when he joined the Holy Club at Oxford University. Yeah, so he entered Pembroke College, Oxford, in 1732. And and he entered uh, with the aspirations to enter the ministry, uh, which his mother uh, certainly wanted him to succeed in. Of course, he was, you know, he was not born again at this time, but he, but he was taken by this little society of men who they they called themselves the Holy Club. And they were the only type of club like that in all of Oxford University. Uh, and they were led by John Wesley. John Wesley's younger brother, Charles, uh, immediately formed a friendship with Whitfield. Uh, Whitfield, of course, was younger uh, than both Wesley brothers. Um, but, you know, but in but in, in this relationship and in this club, uh Whitfield, what Whitfield found with these men was something that that his heart was yearning for. And and that was, you know, to be to be set apart for God, um, to give to give his life to the Lord. But, you know, but unfortunately, even like the men in the Holy Club, um, it was, you know, (laughs) it 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 was in a way that was not directing them to Christ. You know, because one thing I stated in the book about the Holy Club, the Holy Club was not a gospel society. Um, the Holy Club was what I call moralism on steroids. You know, um, these these men honestly depicted what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10 and verse 3 about the Jews, that they had a yeah. zeal for God. Right. But they were seeking to establish their own righteousness because they were completely ignorant of the righteousness of God provided in and through Jesus Christ. And, and that was the Holy club in a nutshell. That's what, that's where those men were spiritually. And so they were doing everything they could 
by their own works to make themselves right with God. And George Whitfield, of course, would um, he he would exceed them in such works, uh, you know, to the point of nearly uh, killing himself just to save his soul. Yeah, yeah. What do we know about when George Whitfield was actually saved himself, Kurt? So, again, he was there at Pembroke College. And in the fall of 1734 to the time of the spring, and particularly it was around Easter of 1735, George Whitfield just went on this impassioned quest to save his soul, and he outdid everybody in the Holy Club. What's interesting, though, is that during this time, Charles Wesley had passed on to George Whitfield a book by a Scotsman named Henry Scougal, and the book was called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. That book was a, was a fantastic piece of literature that explained the new birth. George Whitfield had never heard of the new birth up to that point. So he read Scoogle's book and he saw everything Scoogle had said, expounding from scripture that you must be born again. But at that point, he didn't have the ears to hear it. And so he went on his way, trying very hard to acquire this new birth, his way by his works. And he did everything humanly possible that he could do to save his soul. So that by the time you get to the spring of 1735 and it's around Easter, Whitfield's health is virtually broken. Um, the, the, the college doctor uh, actually confines him to bed where he would be for six to seven weeks. And it was finally at that time, at that point, George Whitfield had come completely to the end of himself. And there he just cried out to God for mercy to save him. And he realized, I can't do this. And there and then the Lord visited George Whitfield with true saving grace. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Really good stuff. In the book, you take us to the place in Whitfield's ministry in 1748, where he was extremely popular and then you draw a fascinating comparison with John the Baptist, which I found really helpful. Tell us about that, Kurt. Yeah. So uh, John the Baptist, during his ministry, obviously became extremely popular. Um, Matthew, Mark and Luke tell us of enormous crowds that, you know, that swelled around John the Baptist's ministry, his preaching. Um, but right you know, in, in, in the scriptural record proceeding when John the Baptist would be arrested by King Herod and put in prison, um, John, the apostle, in his gospel account in chapter three, he tells us of, of this incident where the disciples of John the Baptist are becoming extremely jealous of, of crowds now starting to move away from John the Baptist and go toward this new this new preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And so they're, you know, they're envious of the popularity of Jesus and believe that he's taking it all away from John the Baptist. And as we know in John chapter three, where this is all recorded, 
John the Baptist tells his disciples, you know, summing it up, he says, he, the Lord Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And for John the Baptist, that's that's all that's that's all his entire life meant. It was all about increasing the name of Christ. It wasn't about making John the Baptist someone popular and special and look at me. Well, that kind of humility in John the Baptist is exactly what you see in George Whitfield in 1748. Because by this time, as I say in chapter one of the book, Whitfield's name is a household name on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, he is so popular, you know, throngs of people crowd wherever he preaches. You know, he's nicknamed the grand itinerant. His contemporaries call him the wonder of the age. But nine years preceding this time, there was a great division, of course, between Whitfield and the Wesleys over the doctrine of predestination and election. And, and it caused a tremendous divide in the whole Methodist movement. Well, Whitfield, by 1748, he is, he's done with it. He's done with the division. He is so heartbroken over it. He doesn't see any hope of reconciliation. Um, so he proceeds to give up his place and his position in the Methodist movement as, quite honestly, its initial leader and founder. It was not John Wesley, it was Whitfield who founded the whole Methodist movement. But Whitfield goes to Wesley and he turns the entire movement over to John Wesley. And Whitfield declares, from this point on, I will become the servant of all. And as I stayed in the book, there were letters written um, to Whitfield, his closest friends and, and others who followed him and said, what are you doing, you know? You're going to ruin your reputation. No one's ever going to remember who you are, et cetera, et cetera. And George Whitfield said, let the name of Whitfield perish, but the name of Christ be exalted forever. That's all I care about. So good. So good. We <laughs> live in an age today where metrics are at our fingertips. We're told how popular we are by the, the number of views and likes that we have on social media. And this can be incredibly dangerous, can't it, Kurt? What can we learn in terms of application yeah. from what you've just been telling us from the ministries of both John the Baptist and George Whitfield? Well, um, quite honestly, that, you know, for, for a Christian, obviously, what matters the most is that wherever we are, wherever the Lord providentially has us um, serving him, that the whole reason and exist in, in, in the, in the whole purpose of our existence is to make much of Christ. And that's what you see in John the Baptist. That's what, that's what you see in George Whitfield. Both of those men, their faith is worth imitating both of them in this respect, that they truly did everything to bring glory to God in Christ. And it's amazing, honestly, when you look at both of those men because of their, their popularity, and for George Whitfield, he, I mean, he was so popular that, that he, he really became some sort of a celebrity, though he would have hated that term. But he found his popularity the worst trial that there was. I mean, he, he hated it um, because for him, what mattered most was that Christ would increase 
and George Whitfield would decrease. And so obviously, you know, what we draw from that uh, is, is what we should be, you know, going about our business day in and day out as Christians. And that is, you know, Lord, I want your name and your glory to increase in my life. And frankly, I want to, I want to leave other people with more of you and less of me. And you definitely yeah. see that in John the Baptist and George Whitfield. Yeah, so good. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. We look around at our world today and can begin to think that the world is the worst that it's ever been. What was the world like during the 1700s? Was it this idyllic backdrop just waiting for a gospel preacher to, to enter the scene like Whitfield? <laughs> well, uh, the world preceding the evangelical awakening in Great Britain, um, it, uh, it, it definitely did not appear like an, an ideal scene uh, for, for a gospel preacher like George Whitfield, to be sure. Um, politically, uh, morally, um, religiously, England was really at its worst of times. Um, you know, you politically speaking and, and with its government under Sir Robert Walpole, the first prime minister there in England, um, England was known for its uh, lion's share reputation with the slave trade. It was known for legislation that created hundreds of laws that would bring capital punishment on people, frankly, of all ages, which is amazing. I mean, 15 people a day in the early 1700s in England were being hanged. 15 people a day. And that became the, you know, the, the social event of the crowds. And of course, then, you know, morally speaking, I mean, you had the gin craze, as it was known. Every sixth house in England was a gin house. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so you had that going on uh, there you know, in, in the outside world. And then you look at the church, you know, I mean, the church of England was just sound asleep. Um, you know, the, the church of England, honestly, what you see in the Holy club, going back to, going back to, to the Wesley brothers and their little society in Oxford, England, the Holy club really represented uh, what you saw in the church of England as a whole. I mean, it, you know, it was, you know, whatever, Whatever sermonettes were given by the clergy, they were just, you know, moralistic. Um, they were not being, you know, people were not being left with Christ. And and then on top of that, whatever efforts were being done to stem this tide um, of unbelief, you had um, an Anglican clergy by the name of Bishop Butler, who wrote books that were more in the realm of apologetics, but Bishop Butler was really trying to fix religiously England's problems through the intellect. And he was saying nothing about the need to be born again. He was not giving the English people the gospel. He was just defending from a purely intellectual standpoint, um, the truths of Christianity. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't touching what was the greatest need there for the English people and certainly in the church. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've spent a lot of time reading George Whitfield's sermons and as you've gone through them, how would you describe his style of preaching and how did the Lord use it to make it so effective? Well, uh, 
obviously because Whitfield was an itinerant evangelist. Uh, he was not a pastor of a local church. Um, we don't have any record of any of his sermons being uh, an expository series through one book of the Bible. I mean, that that just never happened. Uh, I mean, uh, Whitfield was traveling and he was preaching. But whatever text of scripture that he took, he did expound it. You know, so it was a textual exposition. Um, yet, on the other hand, it wasn't just purely information that he gave, but once he expounded the context of the scripture text that he was about to preach from, then he went right into gospel application. And his sermons are so rich with application from the text of scripture to the hearer. Uh, in the book, I devote a whole chapter to Whitfield's gospel preaching and I give six distinctive marks about his gospel preaching. Uh, one, it was very aggressive. George Whitfield did something that nobody else was doing at that time. He, he went to the people. He went to where the people were, you know, the people that were lost and undone, the unbelievers. You know, his preaching was very aggressive. He went after the unbeliever. Uh, of course, his preaching was compassionate. Um, there were very few sermons that that man preached that he was not weeping. And, and it was, you know, and by all accounts and those who knew him, they said it was sincere. I mean, this was not an act, you know, I mean, he really, his heart was really broken with compassion over the loss. Uh, thirdly, and this is huge. And I spent some time in the book on this. His preaching was very interrogative. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that, the difference between a sermon and a lecture is that a lecture gives you good information, but a sermon interrogates your soul. Whitfield was a master interrogator. And you read his sermons and the litany of questions that he addresses his hearers with. And, and he never uses the, you know, the, uh, the plural pronoun we. It's always you. You, right. you wonder what are you going to do about this? So, so that whoever heard him preach, no one ever left indifferent. Um, and and he he wanted to make sure that his hearers understood. Hey, what I'm what I'm saying to you from the Word of God, this is for you personally. What are you going to do about it? And and then of course, in addition to that, of course, his preaching was doctrinal very sound doctrinally. It was authoritative. Uh, you know, he, he preached the word of God. It was never his opinions. And then the last and, and, and certainly one of the most distinctive characteristics of his preaching is that it was anointed by the Holy spirit. Um, and you know, that's something I go out of my way in the book to explain that, you know, how, how do you honestly explain 34 years of preaching, throngs of people, wherever he preached, crowding around him to hear him preach. And then you read his sermons and you have to ask, why would all these people want to listen to this? Because, you know, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. So why would those perishing, why would they be captivated to hear this? And the only explanation is it's supernatural. You know, I mean, Whitfield was a phenomena because God, the Holy Spirit, 
had clothed him with power, and he therefore preached with the Spirit's power. And again, to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is one of my favorite Lloyd-Jones quotes. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, John Calvin always needs George Whitfield. And and the reason that Lloyd-Jones said that is because he said, the Achilles heel of Calvinism is intellectualism. And he said, and we've got to be careful about that as Calvinists, as Reformed. He said, so, he said, so Whitfield, his faith is worth imitating because in his preaching, he absolutely depended and cried out upon the Holy Spirit to anoint him, to give him the unction, the power to preach the word of God. And if, I mean, that's just as relevant, obviously, to us today as ministers as it was in his time. Yeah, yeah. so interesting, Kurt. Thank you for that. <laughs> was passionately reformed in his theology do you know how that came to be yeah uh so from the time that he was converted to christ um he began reading the puritans and of course his all-time favorite puritan and in fact what he had beside him in his daily devotions with his greek new testament and his bible was matthew henry's commentaries um And so it really was through the influence of Matthew Henry and, and other English Puritans that, you know, that he, he read John Flavel, John Bunyan, men like that. Um, He was, he was constantly feeding from their writings. And so, yes, it was through, through their influence that shaped him into that reform direction theologically. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. What was the strategy of Whitfield in his evangelism? Well, the strategy was real simple. Um, he, he preached the gospel and he left the outcome with the word of God and the spirit of God. Um, you know, in Whitfield's day, there was no such thing as, as, as what we know today, uh, in particular here in the United States where I live, um, that's what's called the invitation system of the altar call, um, of where, you know, you're, someone may preach the gospel, but then they close, they close the proclamation of the gospel with having people to physically come forward to, you know, get them to pray a so-called sinner's prayer, as it's called, and giving them immediate assurance that they're saved. And, and um, that was just completely unheard of in Whitfield's day. All Whitfield knew to do was what he read in the scriptures. And that is preach the gospel and you leave the results with God. And that really was honestly his strategy. Yeah. 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 So good. So good. You mentioned that you've been writing another book about the great awakening. So um, we'll be looking forward to speaking to you about that. But Whitfield was obviously used during this time as well, wasn't he? Tell us about the great awakening and how the Lord used Whitfield uh, during that time, Kurt. Yeah. So, the Great Awakening, which was a season of spiritual awakening and revival here in the United States, uh, specifically 1740 to 42. So we would say in British and British America uh, at that time, preceding the American Revolution. Um, but it was um, it was a season that covered nearly all 13 British colonies, but, but very, very specifically uh, what, what we know as New England. 
Um, so, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. I mean, those those colonies were especially affected by this work of the spirit. And for George Whitfield, when he went to America on his second visit, he left England in the summer of 1739, three months on ship. Um, he would arrive October, uh, October, November um, there in Philadelphia. And um, by that time, the, the, there were already stirrings, stirrings toward just in little pockets of, uh, of what would be known as the Great Awakening. But what Whitfield had no idea of, what he did not even realize, is how the Lord would use him for the first full year, 1740, of the Great Awakening, where he would become, all by God's doing, the central figure and the catalyst for this revival for that entire year. And that, naturally, uh, as far as second causes go, that's because of Whitfield's incessant traveling. I mean, the trekking that man did, you know, he starts in Philadelphia and then he moves from Philadelphia to New Jersey and then New York. And, and then he travels all the way down to Georgia and then the Carolinas. And then he'll make his way all the way back, back up to New England and everywhere he's going. He's preaching Christ. The spirit of God is anointed, anoint, anointing him and and again, crowds and crowds of people are thronging all around him. And, um, you know, it, I mean, it was just it was just only natural that he became the central figure in that first year yeah. of the Great Awakening. And um, and so, you know, when he left for England in January 1741, um, one of the letters that he had written in his correspondence, I have this quote in the book. What he says of the Great Awakening is this. He says, there is a church rising in America. That was how he described the Great Awakening, a church rising in America. Um, because there were so many people that were closing with Christ. And, and this in spite of the fact that the Great Awakening did have a lot of contemporary critics. And of course, the some of the biggest critics from where Whitfield was coming from was none other than the Anglican church. Right, yeah. and, the, and they, they were extremely critical of Whitfield. You know, he was just an enthusiast as they would call. Yeah. 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 Today we have the internet as a tool, which helps us get sermons and messages out across the world. In Whitfield's day, they used the printing of sermons as a great tool to get the gospel out. Didn't they? Tell us about that, Kurt. Yeah, uh, that was something Whitfield did use to his advantage. Um, and uh, there, there's a funny story, though, of one gentleman in England who asked Whitfield's permission to print his sermons. And Whitfield said, well, he said, I, I give you permission to do so. He said, but the only problem is, he said, you won't be able to print the thunder and the lightning. <laughs> and, and what Whitfield meant by that was, is that, yes, I mean, you'll have the sermon on printed page, you know, but the power of the spirit through the oral proclamation of the gospel, unfortunately, you won't be able to print that. Um, but Whitfield did use the printing press to his advantage. And in particular, and this was very early in his ministry, in particular, he used 
um, the printing press to get out what what would be his journals. Uh, so he wrote he wrote from seventeen early uh, mid seventeen thirties to round about seventeen forty two. Um, he he wrote these journals that reads more like a diary. And he had those journals printed. Benjamin Franklin here in the U.S. was Whitfield's first publisher. And and he did a great job publishing those journals. Um, but I will say in, 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 you know, in the light of this, that the reason Whitfield did not continue his journals is because of the division that would soon take place between he and the Wesleys and everything he suffered because of that. Um, and he just, he just didn't want to have anything else to do with putting himself out in the public in that kind of a way. Uh, so, so he stopped that, but his sermons were continuing to be printed though. Um, but that, but they were printed not by him directly, but by others who were listening to him, who were great, you know, great note takers, uh, which is amazing to me that they could do that. And and they they were printing them with his permission. Yeah, yeah. A wonderful focus of a ministry of George Whitfield was the necessity of the new birth, such a crucial element. Tell us about that, Kurt. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, you know, in regards to where the Church of England was, and 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 then of course the Holy Club where Whitfield was a part of there in Oxford, uh, the gospel of moralism. That I mean, that really was the gospel of the day. Um, just try harder, do better. You know, that, that was the, that was the only gospel that they knew. And so, so for Whitfield, when he did come to faith in Christ and, and through everything that he was reading and studying in the scriptures, everything that he was gaining and gleaning from the Puritans, um, what really became for him, and this obviously was by God's providential doing in Whitfield's life, the, the greatest gospel doctrine that needed to be heard throughout England, but not only England, I mean, even in colonial America too, at least among the Anglicans is that you must be born again. And obviously with the church of England, Whitfield's <laughs> Whitfield's very gifted oratory proclaiming you must be born again was a scandal because, you know, for, for the Anglican church at that time, justification by works of the law, that really was the gospel. You know, as again, as I said, it was the gospel of moralism. So to be told that, as Whitfield did, and he addressed it very clearly to his hearers, that, you know, you're not, you know, you're you're not by your own works or by your own righteousness in favor with God. You know, you are dependent entirely on the blood and righteousness of Christ. You need the spirit of God to regenerate your soul this this was unheard of it was just unheard of by most english people um and so you know whitfield was he just became incessant and impassioned to continue to return to that doctrine again and again and again you read his sermons i mean obviously he preached more than just the doctrine of the new birth but that was his primary message in fact a funny story that's told that happened here in america is that uh, Whitfield had been preaching in New England uh, for a whole week in this certain town, and these deacons of this church came to him, and they were asking him, they said, Whitfield, 
Why do you keep telling us we must be born again? And Winfield just said without hesitation, well, because you must be born again. I mean, it's like, this this is the main thing. You know, I'm not going to steer from it. You know? (laughs) One of the things that I'm really interested to find out a little bit more about is how did George Whitfield reconcile his strong feelings on the importance of a new birth and infant baptism? Hmm. And that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, I, I say it's an interesting question because honestly, in everything I have read uh, about Whitfield, everything I have read of his writings, I have never seen Whitfield reconcile the two. Now, more than likely, and I'll I'll have many uh, Pado Baptist brethren offended with me with what I'm about to say. But more than likely, George Whitfield, um, as as a reformed Pado Baptist, he 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 really just turned a blind eye to to a practice that has no basis in Scripture whatsoever. Um, it is a practice that is according to the traditions of men, and you know, and even though on one occasion. Um, Whitfield uh, said rather tongue in cheek that um, there were in here in America, in particular, the biggest impact he had here in America were of all things. It was on the Baptist. The Baptist loved him more than anybody. Right. And so, so, so Whitfield on one occasion uh, said that, um, you know that that his his chickens had become ducks that all that, that that all of these you know that all of these converts to Christ under his ministry they were becoming baptists whitfield could not understand that at all um but for whitfield it was a, it really i mean it was a tradition he that obviously he had cut his teeth on in the anglican church um and and it was just it was just a matter that he, you know, he, he never he, he never sought to try to reconcile him because clearly he didn't see that there was any need uh, to reconcile. Um, I mean, he was covenantal in his theology, but covenantal more along the lines of Presbyterian covenantalism. Um, and uh, so, you know, so even though even though in his preaching, he would call the sinners out to say, don't rely on your baptism to put you right with God. I mean, he was so clear about that. And yet, and yet <laughs> he would baptize infants, unconverted infants, you know. So it, it, it goes it goes to teach me once again that these heroes of ours, we can follow their faith only so far that as you know, the Apostle Paul writes in First Corinthians 13, you know, he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. There is no figure in church history, no matter how brilliant they are by God's grace, not a single one of them are infallible. Right. So Whitfield was not infallible in his theology. And, and obviously there were, there were errors, you know, errors in his thinking. So, so it's, 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 it's how, it's how I deal with men like Martin Luther, you know, stick to what Luther taught about justification by faith alone and you won't go wrong. 
you know, but there are plenty of other areas where we'll say, well, I don't think I'm going to follow Luther here. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's so true. <laughs> so true. Tell us about the relationship between Whitfield and the Wesley brothers during the good times. Well, during, during the good times, they really were the best of friends. Um, as I said earlier, you know, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, I mean, they, they were very, very precious friends, uh, which is which is what made it just so heartbreaking when the theological divide really went public. And, you know, mainly between John Wesley and George Whitfield. But of course, Charles was right there with his brother um, countering Whitfield's Calvinism. And and um, Charles Wesley, he would not reconcile with Whitfield over all of this. For several years, I mean, John Wesley and George Whitfield—they reconciled before Charles Wesley and George Whitfield reconciled. But before that time, they were working well together um, in taking the gospel to the masses, and 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 they really were on the same page as far as their mission. Um, but you know, as Obviously, as I spent a lot of time in the book bringing out, um, theology matters, and yeah. and and so you know it it just it was just so natural that what would arise between them would be a theological divide that finally that really finally put them at odds ministerially speaking to where they would never work together again. Uh, unbelievably, we've already approached an hour. I've got some more things I want to ask you. Are you all right if we carry on going? keep going yeah thank you thank you so good so so interesting Kurt you spend time in the book helpfully given as a, a biographical portrait of John Wesley uh, give us an overview of, of that Kurt so Wesley lived between the years 1703 1791 um I want to say I think he was 12 years Whitfield senior uh he was converted in 1738 though so he was converted to Christ uh a little later than George Whitfield. He and his brother Charles famously came here uh, to America, specifically to, to uh, the British colony of Georgia, uh, my native state. And they came to the newly established uh, city of Savannah. Of course, it wasn't a city at that point. But anyway, but they came to Savannah and they came to reach the American native Indians with the gospel uh, but of course, John Wesley, as he would come to realize, um, it, it, he needed the gospel as much as the American Native Indians. Um, and and it would be, frankly, on, on his way back to England from Georgia that being on the ship with these Moravians and when the ship entered into this horrible storm, John Wesley was so stunned by the peace and the serenity of these Moravian Christians. And he realized, I don't have that. And so reaching England, coming back home, um, he came under the influence of this Moravian leader and went to a reading there uh, at Aldersgate Street. He went to a reading of the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and and it was it was in the reading of that preface that were that were told by John Wesley's own testimony that he he closed with Christ, he came to faith in Christ, 
And, um, and so from that point on, I mean, you know, John Wesley, I mean, the rest of his, the rest of his life would be reaching England for Christ. And the man, the man was pretty incredible physically, uh, with what he achieved, um, because there was not, there was not a city, a town, a village. There was not a county in England where John Wesley had not preached. And the, and the, the Methodist movement, the societies that were established, you know, they spread all over England uh, through so much of his labors. And, and of course, I will say this, you know, different than Whitfield, Wesley was uniquely gifted with the gift of administration and organization. And it's pretty amazing what the man organized, you know, that became, you know, the Methodist movement and so forth. But, uh, but anyway, uh, but to his dying day, uh, theologically, he, he was, he was a passionate Arminian. And, uh, and even though he ceased having his war with Calvinism, with, with Whitfield, uh, he, he would, um, continue having his all out war on Calvinism. Yeah. <laughs> as well as being an Arminian, it may surprise some people, but Wesley was also wobbly on a few other things theologically. Tell us about the doctrine of perfectionism. Yeah, yeah that was the biggest. Um, so, so you have historic Arminianism and then you have what is, what has been called Wesleyan Arminianism and Wesleyan Arminianism is so tagged because of John Wesley's peculiar teaching on sinless perfectionism. And Wesley's teaching on perfectionism was actually a reaction to the antinomianism that he saw in Calvinistic churches. And he was therefore overcorrecting what he saw with antinomianism, but he just went to the other extreme and basically started teaching that a Christian on this side of glory, before they are actually really perfected in glory, they can reach sinless perfectionism here and now. And George Whitfield had as much of a controversy over that doctrine with Wesley as he did with Wesley's soteriology and Arminianism. You know, they, I mean, they, they went toe to toe over the perfectionism just as much. Yeah. Yeah. And and like all um, errors and, and all heresies, they, these things often show their faces time and time again. And, and this, is an attack on the church that we see today as well. I mean, these things aren't things that are locked away in history. We, we, as Christians, we shouldn't become complacent about these things. This is things that we actually have knocking on the door of a church today, isn't it, Kurt? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, and well, you know, we, we know the old adage ideas have consequences and there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, we're still facing today, I mean, the same doctrinal controversies, you know, that, that they, they were facing in their time. Um, You know, the gospel of moralism is still alive and well. Um, The, you know, there's still, you know, you still have the divide between Arminianism and Calvinism and, and, you know, in, in the theological battles that, you know, that are fought there. Um, and of course, too, Wesleyan Arminianism is still alive and well in certain segments yeah. um, of, you know, the church, like the Church of the Nazarene in particular. Um, they strongly hold to Wesleyan's perfectionism. Yes. Yeah. 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 A big supporter of Whitfield and his ministry was Selina, the Countess of Huntingdon. What do we know about her, Kurt? 
Yeah, Selena was a really amazing woman. Um, she lived between the year 1707 to 1791. She died at 83 years of age, which is really old for somebody at that time. Uh, she was involved in the Methodist movement for 40 years. She was responsible for the construction of 64 chapels during that time. In 1748, she actually appointed George Whitfield as her chaplain. Uh, she was initially taken by John Wesley um, and, and under his influence for a period of time, but it was a very short period of time because she moved away from his Arminianism to embrace confessional Calvinism. And, and with that, um, she was taken with Whitfield. And so uh, through Selena, George Whitfield had doors open with the nobility of England, the aristocracy of England, to give them the gospel. And that was a great, great burden on Selena. You know, Selena wanted her class of society to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because she knew they're lost. You know, they're going to hell. They need to hear the gospel. And so that's how she she actually employed Whitfield uh, to bring the gospel to her particular class of society. Yeah, good stuff. What do we know about Whitfield's prayer life? Uh, that he prayed incessantly that he had from, from the, from, from the time of his, from, from the time of his new life in Christ, from its very beginning, Whitfield was a man of prayer. You know, he, he, he really showed forth true biblical piety, great, great devotion to communion with God, being in the word. And this was something that his his spiritual self-discipline is very convicting because there just was no inconsistency there with him. Uh, he, he would rise at four in the morning every day. He would retire at night at 10, at 10 PM, no matter who was with him. Uh, he would, he would be to bed so he could rise at four and from four to five, he was in the word. He was in prayer having Matthew Henry join him every morning. And then from 5 a.m., he's out into the fields and he's preaching Christ. And that was, you know, that was 34 years. Yeah, yeah. Those 34 years, he preached 18,000 sermons, spending 60 hours per week doing so. Just tell us about some of that remarkable output, Gert. Well, remarkable is the operative word, no doubt, because this is the 18th century we're talking about. No such thing as trains, planes, and automobiles. Um, you know, you you travel either by boat, by buggy, by horse, or by foot. And when you consider how Whitfield got from place to place, in as many places as he went, you know, seven visits to America, 15 to Scotland, um, he tried to reach the West Indies in Canada. He he did reach Bermuda. Um, of course, there was nowhere in England where he did not reach twice twice to Ireland. Um, no one in his time, as as far as the gospel minister is concerned, no one was reaching as many people for Christ as George Whitfield. And that's why I said earlier that his own contemporaries called him the Wonder of the Age. Uh, it was it was just incredible and incredible even more so when you consider 
that he had physiologically, he had premature aging going on. He had asthma, which eventually would be the cause of his death in 1770. He, I mean, he, he would die of an asthmatic attack that he could not recover from. But it is just, to use your word, remarkable as to what that man was doing to reach as many people as he could for Christ. And that he, I mean, physically, physically, he was doing it. And so, um, you know, I mean, imagine if someone with his spiritual energy and zeal today, but with things like trains and planes and automobile and internet, what output he yeah. would be giving today. Right, yeah. 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 <laughs> Even considering this incredible volume of work, am I right in saying that Whitfield was sorry that he didn't achieve more? Sure he was. Yeah, he always was. Yeah, I mean, he he could never do enough for Christ. I mean, that, that's just honestly how he felt. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. As we know, the Lord only has fallen, sinful, imperfect men to work with. And as, as much as we, we love George Whitfield, he wouldn't want us to, to look back in his life in a way that lifted him up as anything else. What do we know about his struggles or his character flaws, Kurt? Well, obviously, I've already mentioned um, his marriage um, and, and what flaws were there. Obviously, the other and the most glaring um flaw that he had was was the fact that he was a slave owner um i address this very candidly in my book but i address it in a way that the reader can understand just where was george whitfield coming from because as you know david in our day with the so-called cancel culture and all of the signal you know the the virtue signaling and all that mess of where you know people in our day especially like to look down their noses at people like Whitfield from the past and say, well, I would never be guilty of that, or I would never do that. Okay. Well, maybe so. Maybe, maybe you never would enslave another human, but I'm sure there are plenty of other sins that you are guilty of that George Whitfield never would be, you know, but, but, but with Whitfield though, and the slave trade, he, he knew how bad, the transatlantic slave trade was uh, there's a letter he wrote in 1750 and it's the only letter that he wrote where he really gives his full weight of this is what I think about it all. He knew it was wrong, but for him, he saw it as an act of redemption for these African slaves because he said, I could give them a better life. They would have a far, a far exceeding better life here in Savannah. You know, this was all, he, he 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 had slaves for the orphanage um, there in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, and he just you know he justified it by trying to Christianize it as best as he could, to sanctify it as best as he knew how, because he says I'm giving them the gospel, and you know I'm giving them a place of where they can lay their head to rest, and they've got food to eat, you know they're not starving, et cetera, et cetera, and so you know. It's sad because there's so many other dear saints of God of Whitfield's time and even in the 19th century who endorsed and, you know, and also owned African slaves. But when you read their writings, I mean, you really do see 
these were Christian men who, who were blinded by their own cultural sins, but even in their blindness, because they were Christians, they were doing everything they could to sanctify it as best as possible. But unfortunately, with the transatlantic slave trade, you couldn't sanctify that at all. You know, it yeah. was it was what God's word condemns as man stealing. And yeah. sadly, Whitfield was a part of that. Yeah, yeah. What does George Whitfield leave as, as a legacy? Well, three things in particular, which um, which I, I've I've mentioned during this interview. One, of course, is he leaves us with a great example of what Christian humility really looks like. Um, you know, the Word of God teaches us. I just turn to it here in Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so to be obedient to that text, what is it that we see in Whitfield's faith that's worth imitating? And and my, my biggest takeaway in 30 years of studying his life is that Imitating his faith is imitating the grace of humility that he showed in such an exceeding and extraordinary way, obviously all by the grace of God working in his life. But especially when you consider the fact that as young as he was, and, and like I said earlier in the interview, in my book, I mean, I'm, I'm only covering years, the, the years of his life when he was in his 20s. And you just don't, frankly, see Christian young men in their 20s showing the kind of humility George Whitfield showed. And, you know, and, and, and especially when you consider how extraordinarily popular he was and how fast he became as popular as, as, he, as he was. And so, um, so that is the first and the biggest legacy that he leaves us, that this is what walking humbly with God looks like. This is how we treat others with humility. And, and I would say probably one of the biggest distinctives of that with Whitfield, which I highlight in my book, is that he was always very, very teachable. Whitfield was never a know-it-all. He, he just showed such a teachable spirit um, with with anyone that he was with and um and so that is just and it's just wonderful to see that in someone as young as he was at at that time uh the next of course great legacy is just the preaching of the gospel you know i mean i, I mentioned earlier the the six distinctive marks of his gospel preaching that i highlight in the book um and two two of those marks that are much needed today uh, would definitely be the aggressiveness of his gospel preaching and the interrogative characteristic of his gospel preaching. I mean, the way, as I said, the way he addressed his hearers, no one left indifferent when they heard him preach. I mean, they were, you know, they were either mad or they were glad. 
but yeah. they were they were not indifferent <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and then the last and the and the final great legacy is just is just the legacy of the fact that God uses um, broken, fallen vessels redeemed by His grace to do great things for his kingdom. You know, as, as, as I've already said, I mean, Whitfield was, he was a fallible man. Um, and in the last chapter of the book, chapter 10, uh, which I entitled the already and the not yet, um, that's where, you know, I, I deal with the fact of his, his most glaring flaws and sins, but at the same time coming away from that and saying, okay, but how, how do we, how do we respond to that as Christians today? Well, frankly, we should see ourselves in Whitfield. Mm. I mean, are, are we any different? Are we any better? And mm. of course, the answer is absolutely not. You know, yeah. um, Whitfield was a man who could say with the Apostle Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. And frankly, that is what every single Christian can say as well. I am what I am by the grace of God. Amen. 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 I absolutely loved reading the book. I've loved speaking to you today as well. But we're going to take a quick break before returning to brilliant stuff. Thank you, Kurt. Well, before we let you go, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Well, on social media, um, of course, I do have a Facebook page. Uh, Also, um, I am the pastor of Providence Reformed Baptist Church. And we do have a we do have a website that's prbc1689.org. That's the web address. And you can keep in touch with me there. Um, I have a sermon audio, or I should say, our church has a sermon audio web page. So you can go to sermonaudio.com and can you know keep in touch with me there as far as you know the sermons that I preach every week. Um, closing thoughts. Well, you know, my, my closing thoughts would be, would be this, um, that going back to the scripture passage I read out of Hebrews, and I'll read once again, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We should thank God for the heroes of the faith that he's given us throughout church history. But always remembering that what we should seek to imitate with these men of God is their faith. You know, we don't imitate their flaws, but we imitate their faith. And so what is it in their faith that is worth imitating? That's worth following. And obviously, you know, that's what I have sought to put forward to the readers with George Whitfield in the book, thundering the word. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, we're going to make sure that we find all of those links, the link to the book and the links to your sermon audio and the church website as well. We'll all be in the, the description below wherever you're listening or watching this interview. Kurt, thanks again for taking the time to, to speak to us today. It's honestly been such a pleasure speaking to you. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, David. Likewise, it's been a pleasure speaking to you too, brother. And I, and, and Lord willing, hopefully we can we we can chat again when my new book comes out at the first of the year on Jonathan Edwards. Definitely. I'll look forward to it. Make sure you send me an email when it comes out. We'll I'm, definitely do that. I will. Thank you. 